0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Anthropology, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Alex Golub, a professor of anthropology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and I will be your host of the channel today. I'm very excited. Today, we're going to be talking to Rosemary Levy Zumwalt, who is Dean of the College Emerita and Professor Emerita of Anthropology at Agnes Scott College. And we're going to be talking to her today about her new book, Franz Boas, The Emergence of an Anthropologist, which was published at the University of Nebraska Press in 2019. Rosemary,
1: welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Alex. I appreciate that.
0: Now, this book is very interesting, unique almost, because Franz Boas uh, is well known to anthropologists and intellectuals as an important thinker of the 20th century and yet there has not been a single volume biography of him. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about how it was that you came to write this book and uh, how it is that uh,
1: this gap has sort of persisted and you've managed to fill it? Yes, I can start with the last part, the last question first. Uh, I know well now why people have not written a complete biography of Franz Boas, because it's exhausting. Uh, (laughs) Now, I have to give credit to Douglas Cole, who wrote, of course, the biography, the first biography of Franz Boas that was what he called the early years. He took that up to 1906, and he actually died of a stroke Uh, suddenly before his book came to press. Um, And his graduate students actually brought it to print. Um, And he had intended to write a second volume, just as I did. And really, I followed the acquisition editor's advice at University of Nebraska Press, Matt Bakavoy, and he had good advice. He said, do it in two volumes, which I did. Otherwise, it would have been a doorstop. Uh, It would have been so big. Uh, And so... I know I'm supposed to wait till the end, but I will say I did finish the second volume, and that will come out in October of 2022. I live in the last century because so much of my work was done in the last century, so I often find myself saying the wrong century. <laughs> now, you want me to talk about how I got involved in Franz Boas. I will tell you I used to always tell my students when I taught anthropology at Davidson College, be careful what you choose to study for your senior thesis, because you might stick with it forever and ever and ever. And in a sense, I did that with um, biographical uh, stories. Um, I did my master's thesis on Arnold Van Ginnup, and I got hooked on telling a life story through archival letters and through what other people said about uh, about the individual and through their own works. And then for my PhD thesis at UC Berkeley, I did research at the American Philosophical Society Library on uh, the uh, anthropologist in folklore. And so I saw Boaz's papers there before I started work on Boaz and it, it just it really did snowball. And luckily, I dodged the big, fat snowball and wrote about it on its way down the hill. So the, I just um, continued working on biographies, intellectual biographies. In addition to uh, Arnold van Gennep, has that ever
0: been published? I'd love to read an intellectual biography yes, of that, van Gennep. Yes, that
1: has been published by Folklore Fellows Communications mm-hmm. in Helsinki.
0: And you've also written a book on Elsie Clues Parsons as well.
1: Yes, I wrote Wealth and Rebellion on Elsie Clues Parsons. That was the second biographical uh, piece of work that I did. And actually, I should have included that in my remarks about getting enticed into writing about Boaz, because I have a chapter in that book that's called The Scientists and it, it's about Cluse Parsons and her work with Boas and the other anthropological students of his. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I did.
0: So by the time you came to write the Boas book, you, you were already very, very familiar with the milieu and the other thinkers. You had already seen his papers and uh, you decided to take the plunge and, and try to put it all together.
1: Yes, indeed. I began when I first had a sabbatical. Oh, God, I think about that. It was in 1995, 1996. And basically, it was like following letters across the continent, because I started in Philadelphia and worked at the American Philosophical Society. I also did research, this was before then, though, this was for the Elsie Clues Parsons book, at Rye Historical Society in Rye, New York and went through uncatalogued letters of Elsie Cluse Parsons, went through her house there uh, in Rye. Uh, It was allowed to, I I didn't just break in, uh, was allowed (laughs) to, and with great generosity of the Rye Historical Society. Uh, So I began this journey early, and I continued on. And I will say that it is it is exhausting and yet it is totally encompassing. So that when I finished the second biography of Boaz, I felt a great absence, a great void. Um, and so I started another biography, but we'll talk about that later. So you said
0: you were doing this research in ninety five. Is this a is this book and its successor volume the result of twenty years of work?
1: Oh, yes. Oh, without a doubt. And then I acquired all of the, the complete microfilm of Franz Boas' professional papers, and I read it all. Um, I will say there are probably some German letters that I didn't read. I, I tried to, but I didn't read. Um, but I read Spanish and Italian and French, uh, and, of course, English. So I I would work endlessly on his Uh, microfilms and on the correspondence. And I think a large part of it was just organizing it and, and trying to find the thread that I would follow.
0: Well, one of the remarkable things about this uh, biography is the density of quotation. You read a whole paragraph as the reader, and you feel like you've read a story that the narrator has told you. But then when you go back and actually look at it, it's, it's, it's composed entirely of quotations sometimes. So it, it has that quality of great historical writing where you, you feel like you're being given a narration, but you're also being put in touch with the primary documents, which I thought was, it uh, was really valuable. One of the great things about the book.
1: Yeah. I, that w- that w- I'm glad that you mentioned that because that was my goal to capture the spoken word and to read history through the spoken word. Um, and it does take a lot of space. It's I'm not really good at synthesizing, but I am good at, at conveying the conversation to the point that I actually would hear the voices. Well, I didn't hear voices, but I I could imagine voices, the, the speakers speaking.
0: Mm. You said you had a background in folklore. Do you think that the that folklore background with the focus on the text shaped how it is that you chose to approach this? Oh,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Um, because folklorists are trained and I was trained to in folklore to follow the narrative and to adhere to the spoken word and to respect the spoken word. And so, yes, indeed, that helped me enormously.
0: That's so interesting. Um, And it's amazing the amount of research that can go into one of these books. It's absolutely amazing. You know, some readers or some readers, some listeners um, may not be very familiar with Franz Boas. They might think of him as the father of American anthropology or maybe even of all anthropology. Uh, Could you just maybe tell us very briefly who he
1: was and what he should be remembered for? Oh sure, um, I think you're right that people are not necessarily familiar with the biographical details of his life. So I will do it in brief form. He was born in 1858 in Minden, Westphalia. So he's German, and he's German through and through. Um, he loved the German language, German culture, and um, he he credited his German upbringing for many of his uh, achievements later in life. So he grew up in Minden, Westphalia, and he had the run of the mountainsides um, and loved nature, was always in nature, so to speak, collecting fossils and uh, ant plants and growing plants on the roof of his house and the ceiling of his house, the roof, ceiling, roof, not ceiling. Um, and exceedingly d- doing exceedingly well in the gymnasium. Um, then he went to college, and he went to three different universities. One first, it was at Heidelberg, and then at Bonn, and then at Kiel. Um, and he went to Kiel because his sister Tony, his older sister, was very ill, and she was in a, a sanatorium in Kiel. So that is one of the. The points of Boas's life, he was very, very, very loyal to family, um, and very close to all of his family. He took his degree in 1881, and then he um, he went to uh, to Baffinland in 1883 through 1884, and did his first stint of of field work, um, very intense field work, and. So he went to Baffinland as a physicist and he really came back as an anthropologist though he never ever ever abandoned his interest in what was called modern modern geography um, B- Baffinland being so, in northern Canada yes and, absolutely yeah. and and he worked with the Inuit in in northern Canada um, he then uh, he his father his his father's only requirement was that he take a servant with him. So he took Wilhelm Vikey with him. Um, and Wilhelm Vicky I just can't even imagine the kind of experience that he had because he was from a, a rural village in Germany in Westphalia and really had not been out of of Germany. Uh, and suddenly he's in the Arctic with Boaz. He's he was learning he's how Is that to right? Pardon me, please. He he was the gardener. They took the gardener he was the along. The gardener, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, right. And he's always re- he's always described as Boaz's servant. Uh, Boaz had him keep a diary, which uh, which is a great innovation. And uh, Wilhelm kept track of his events and his adventures in cooking. So he cooked anything that came into the kitchen at Kikerton at the whaling station where where the two were staying. Uh, but it, it's, it's a wonderful adventure and my colleague uh, Ludger Mui has uh, documented that and translated the Diaries of Boaz and of Vike as well he um, Boaz came to the United States on his way back from Baffinland and he wanted to remain here because he, in the United States, because his fiance Marie Krak- Krakowitzer lived in New York, but he wasn't able to get a job, and so in March eighteen eighty five he went back to Germany, very crestfallen, um, and he ended up writing his Habilitationsschrift, or his his doctor's thesis, a thesis that would allow him to teach at a German university. Um, And he completed that, and then he left for a visit, and he never returned to live in Germany. He returned to Germany, but never to live there permanently. So from 1886 on, he lived in the United States, and he married Marie Krakenweiser. I actually titled this book originally, Franz Boas, A Love Story, because it dearly is a love story between Boaz and Marie and Boaz and his students in Boaz and anthropology. Mm -hmm. So uh, I will wear everybody out if I go through all of his details, but that gives a kind of early uh, synopsis of his, the dates and his adventures.
0: It sounds like in many ways, contemporary academics would be able to relate to Boaz. He has a significant other He's trying to find a job near them, but there are no jobs available on the market, and so he sort of has to uh, find a way to make do. That's right. Yes, that's a good way
1: of putting it. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he has family, a mother that is very, very, very determined that he come back to Germany to live. And so she's constantly after him, you know, about loyalty to their parents, et cetera, et cetera. And it traumatizes Boaz, actually. It's sad to read the letter, those letters.
0: It seems like, um, if I remember correctly, he had uh, he had proposed to Marie, um, but was not allowed to become engaged to her until after he had done this expedition and, and gained professional experience. I think, if I remember correctly, in the book, you say he comes to New York from Baffinland, you know, raw from his fieldwork experience. And that's the first time that he ever touches her. They hug for the first time at
1: that point because they're a 19th century couple. Yeah. It's very, it's very dear. I have to admit. Um, He decides that he will keep it, that they should keep it secret, that the engagement should not be announced because he wants Marie to be free uh, in case he doesn't come back because it was an adventure and there was some danger involved. And so he tells her that when he leaves, when he departs, that if he doesn't come back within two years, that she is not to regard their engagement any longer as as binding. And so when he comes back to New York, he makes his way to where he thinks Marie will be, and he, he can't find her because she's gone to, she's at a, a Cabin at uh, Lake George, uh, upstate New York, and uh, she's gone to a boat landing. So eventually they managed to be in the same place, yes, and they embrace and kiss for the first time. That's it is amazing. very dear.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, you've described his love of um, German language and German culture. He also famously was Jewish. Uh, can you talk yes. a little bit about um, what his Jewish identity was like? You talked about him. Uh, at university. And one of the things he's famous for is having a dueling scar on his cheek from having to defend his honor
1: in duels. Yes. Um, Initially, the dueling was uh, really for kind of vapid reasons. It was because he was insulted about his piano playing at, at Heidelberg. But when he went to Bonn, and even more when he went to Kiel, It became serious as he wrote to his mother, please don't say anything about the scars that I bring home on my face because the Jew baiters are terrible. Um, Yeah, he was born into a Jewish family in Minden, and the ties were somewhat loosened in terms of uh, identity with Judaism, but not entirely entirely. Uh, And it's interesting to me because I think so much discussion has been around Boaz and his identity as a Jew in this country. If he had grown up in this country now, there'd be no question he's Jewish. His affiliation, well, maybe he wasn't affiliated um, and he's lapsed in terms of practice. But his his father and his father's parents were very observant. His father less so. But nonetheless, they went to his grandmother's house on on Shabbat, on Friday nights for dinner. And um, I I know from reading his letters that he did observe Yom Kippur, just because he said in one letter to his parents, happily, Yom Yom Kippur has passed. So um, I know that he did observe it. And yeah, he did suffer. And he did want to immigrate to the United States because he thought there would be more freedom for him. He thought he would be limited in his professional opportunities in Germany.
0: Mm. So on the one hand, he was relatively, I guess, assimilated, we might want to say. He was committed to secular German life. But at the same time, I guess in Germany at that time, you didn't have the option to not be Jewish the way that you might have in other times and places.
1: Right, he he actually had considered converting to Christianity and spoke with it about one of his with one of his professors at University of Kiel, who thought it was unnecessary and saw no reason for that. Um, so yes, he he was he was not strongly he did not strongly identify as Jewish, but I'll tell you what the Nazis would have identified him as Jewish, and it's funny because I always live in the moment. And I would always kind of gasp when there was a, a job offer. He had many, uh, many opportunities to go back to Germany or go back to Europe. And I would gasp and think, oh, don't do that, Boaz. And of course, he didn't. Mm.
0: Yeah, I think I think for many intellectuals of that time, their Jewish identity came from the fact that they didn't have an option as opposed to it being something they affirmatively chose. I think maybe Arendt was that way as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so he... and it was also mm-hmm. it was also part of the um, the awakening, the enlightenment in Germany. So that there was a a path to follow. If you were a middle class Jew, you could uh, you you were to learn German, of course, and speak German, and also uh, participate in professions that were not marked as being necessarily a Jewish profession. So it was markers of moving into the middle class, certainly. Yes, yeah. So he was in America, and then, um,
0: uh, what happened then? He was trying to find work, uh, and trying to get married and support a family. How did that work out for him?
1: Yes, when he first arrived in in um, America, when he came back from Germany after his habilitation, after he passed that, um, he came back to visit Marie, and his uncle Jacoby, Abraham Jacoby, uh, helped him along with Carl Schurz. They were both what's called 48ers, uh, refugees from the revolutions of 1848. And they helped Boaz go to the Northwest Coast. So it was his first trip to the Northwest Coast. And when he arrived in Seattle, he saw the pictures that he had taken, that he had of Bellacoola Indians, uh, and he knew them by name. And eventually they came into the store where he was and he greeted them in the Bellacoola language. So he began doing research in the Northwest coast. And while he was there, um, he came back then with a large ethnographic collection and sold that and was able to defray some of the expenses from that. And he went to the office of so- the Science Magazine and presented them with an article and was hired as an associate editor for the Science Magazine. So he immediately then made the announcement that Maria, Maria and he were engaged and they were married in March of 1887 um, in a very simple ceremony.
0: So you mentioned that the Bellacula Indians knew him. and I think that was because he had been studying in Germany before this research trip. Is that right? And then, That's so that right. was he, how he first he became studied interested. the Bellacula
1: Indians who were in, um, in Berlin and he was studying their language uh, when they were in Berlin. Mm-hmm.
0: So his, so, you know, he's, I think many people think of him today as being an ethnographer of the northwest coast uh, of uh, of North America, um, but that was sort of the result of his family staking him money to do a research expedition in the hopes that he would sort of be able to turn that into something. Is that
1: sort of a hustle? Isn't that, that became curious. He um, he in in part it was because it was easier to get there. It was easier to take the the transcontinental Rail- ra- railway across the country to get to the northwest coast than it was to get back to the Arctic. He did try to go back to the Arctic. He, uh, there, was, there were not, not the funds that are available now, but uh, he did apply for some funding for a multi-year study that would cover the Arctic, uh, but he wasn't able to get funding for it. So he did continually go back to the Northwest coast.
0: You know, you were talking about the difficulty of doing field work. Your book in in Baffinland, your book describes things like people walking off of the island, you know, like a kilometer off the coast or something to where the ice broke up to where a ship could get to it. It just sounded very, very extreme and very, very hazardous. This was not a case of it was just cold. I mean the whole just the whole process of getting there and getting back with the technology of the time, and I imagine even still today was was very, very treacherous compared to the northwest coast
1: yes, yes, his experience in Baffinland um was incredible it it was actually magical to read about uh, very engrossing and um fairly scary to be honest with you but um so magical in terms of how it captured Boaz and didn't let him go. When he saw the festival of Sedna, he calls it Sedna, it's very similar to an Alaskan Inuit celebration called nalukatak where the, there's gift giving and people come to the door and they throw gifts out to, to people who who visit. Um, when he saw that, he left Wilhelm on the ice floe because they were measuring the thickness of the ice, and he went immediately to see this. Uh, that's one of the things that struck me about Boaz. He's often rendered as being very inflexible, but he was very flexible in terms of of adapting uh, his fieldwork to what presented itself to him. Mm.
0: Yes. And he and he did field work for a year in a particular place. This was a new method, as opposed to the old expeditionary method. And he did it before Malinowski. Malinowski is sometimes considered the father of modern fieldwork. but this was a decade, two decades before Malinowski did this.
1: Yes. Um- Actually, Hans Vermulen and uh, Francisco Delgado have published a book called 100 Years Before Malinowski, and it includes all of the ethnographers that preceded Malinowski. Uh, It always struck me that Boas had all of the markers of of what is known as Malinowski's, kind of portrayed as Malinowski's innovations in fieldwork, uh, creation of the fieldwork method. But it was being done by others. And certainly Boaz did that.
0: Mm. Maybe this would be a good time to talk about his relationship with indigenous people. When Boaz was there on Baffin land, he witnessed uh, the spread of epidemics. I think. Uh, I think you describe him as buying and selling human remains in the course of a specific Northwest Coast field That work? wasn't
1: in Baffin land. That was in the Northwest Coast. And that is the that is the most unpalatable aspect. If I have to dislike Boaz at any point, it was that point. Um, yes, he did in, in the Northwest Coast.
0: Well, let's not have not this just Baffin be a pure love letter to, to Boaz. Let's talk about the unsavory side, too. What, what what possessed him to
1: do that? And why did he do that in that single case? Okay, so, you know, I think about this a, a lot. He was poor. He was very, very poor. He he had no support for his fieldwork, for his family, his growing family, his wife. Let me think. They had two babies uh, at that point. And really, it was to support himself. He loathed it. Um, but he did it. And and I find that unpalatable. Um, he did not do that in Baffinland. And I think largely because he was overlooked so much. He He was with the Inuit, and they would have objected so strongly, as they did in the Northwest Coast as well.
0: Mm. At the same time, he's often portrayed as having warm relations with indigenous people, uh, George hunt, for instance, who was his indigenous collaborator and, uh, and others. So I think that was also another side of his relationship. I seem to remember one of the early papers about Boaz and George, uh, George hunt. I can't remember the author now, uh, where she says that, you know, for Boaz, the best anthropologist was an indigenous anthropologist because, they had the local familiarity in a way that uh, someone who just dropped in for a couple of months uh, wouldn't have. So that was a side of his relationship yes. as well.
1: That might've been Wendy Wickwire. Yes. Um, he did. He collaborated with, uh, with people who grew up in the culture and spoke the language with George Hunt, with James Tite, with, uh, and this is a different example in Baffin, Land with George Mooch, who was a Scottish whaler. Um, so he, he would frequently co-author papers or books with these, these individuals, um, and, and that's good. And, and in his later years, he hosted them in his home in, in New Jersey. Uh, when he couldn't get to the Northwest Coast, he would have them come to visit him. Uh, in his home in New Jersey. So he had a very close relationship with the people with whom he worked over the years.
0: I think a lot of people today would look at Boaz or maybe people of Boaz's generations and say, well, these are people who were part of the process of dispossessing indigenous people and um, did things like invited people to New York, even though they knew that those people might become ill because of their exposure to diseases. How would you respond to that claim that Boaz, even though on the surface he was trying to support indigenous people and partaking of an anti-racist anthropology, um, how would you respond to that claim as an expert in his life that he was, in some sense,
1: helping to perpetuate colonial rule, something like that? I, I don't think that's quite fair to him. Uh, I understand why you're framing the question in that way, and I've heard that said as a critique as well of Boaz and of others in his period. He, um, I think, was very caring and tried to be as knowledgeable about medical practices. Uh, so when he was in the Arctic, for instance, and it was a diphtheria epidemic that was... M- raging through the Inuit population. Um, he was called Dr. Luke, uh, doctor because he would, he all he had to give was, was it aspirin or was it a uh, sulfa drug? Um, but he would try to help the people and he would also bring food to them and and water to them. So I don't think that he was careless, heartless in what he did. I also don't think he was perpetuating racism or colonialism. He was, his sole pursuit in life was the science and truth and trying to, and actually I say in my second book that you can't understand Boaz unless you understand his quest for social justice. He was very, very, very committed to equity, social equity and social justice and anti-racism. Um, He lectured to his 1915 class at Barnard College that if all they got out of the class was to realize that people are different, but it doesn't mean that they're inferior, that there is no justification for racial prejudice. And that was what he wanted them to take from his course. So I think that he was very committed, and that was kind of what made his heart beat, really. Hmm. Can, maybe this would be a good time to ask you,
0: you know, you know him so well, and you you said that um, people had this conception of him as someone who is very inflexible, but you found him flexible. Can you maybe just tell us about his personality and his temperament?
1: what was what was he like as a person? I think that's a really good question, and I think that his personality changed throughout his teaching. Um, when he first started, He had mostly male students, almost all. He had one or two female students. Um, And he was very stern, very severe in the German model, really, of the professor. Um, He also had a lot of things going on at the American Museum of Natural History, a lot of conflict going on. So Lowy, for instance, Robert Lowy the anthropologist from UC Berkeley, said that when he, he was Boaz's student, said that when he, he would dread running into Boaz on the way to class. And he realized years later that that was a time when Boaz was under so much pressure at the American Museum of Natural History that he attributed his curt answers to Boaz's feeling about Lowy, And it was more Boaz's feeling about life. So that's to say that in his earlier, with his first cohort of students, I think that he was very, uh, very much in the mold of the German professor, very kind of straight-laced. Um, but after World War One, he taught many more women students. And as I say, his women students gentled him, gentled the image of Boaz to a more grandfatherly image. They called him Papa France then, um, the younger, the first cohort of male students called him the old man, but his women's students called him Papa France, and they were very, very, very attached to him, emotionally attached to him. So I think that that allowed him to uh, become more personable and uh, to reach out and show more of himself.
0: Was he... Funny? Did he have a sense of humor? He, he was musical.
1: He played piano. Yes, oh. he was very musical. He was, I don't think he was funny. Uh, <laughs> I must say, I don't think he was funny. Uh, I think that the, some of the stories told about him are funny, but I don't think he himself was funny. He was very intense, very learned and very intense.
0: I think many and, people think of him from the, the pictures of him uh, undressed, imitating uh, Pacific, uh, not Pacific On, Pacific Northwest poses for use in the making of dioramas. So sometimes people think of him as a comical or an absurd character because those are the only images
1: of him that they see. Right, right. No, I, I think he was very proper. He was raised to be a proper German gentleman, and I think that he was. Mm.
0: You talked about him being stressed. I think maybe we should get back to the course of his life. He did this field work in the South, in the Northwest for several years. And then um, he eventually got some job security. Uh, can you tell me about how that came about? I think he didn't get his first full-time job
1: until he was in his late 30s or 40s. Right, and he had he had his family to support. Yes, he, he was hired as a docent at Clark University by G. Stanley Hall. Um, and that was when Clark University was just opening in 1889. He stayed there until 1892, when most of the faculty left because of dissatisfaction with uh, with the president, the trustees, and the college. And Boas left, he went to, but Boas didn't go to University of Chicago. That's what, University of Chicago just basically Absconded with um, with the faculty at Clark University, and Boaz um, Boaz was regarded as somewhat of a troublesome character. Frankly, I think it was a matter of anti-Semitism. I really do. I, I haven't made that claim, but but I haven't substantiated that claim. It's just kind of there. It's it's why not? Why not take him? Because he was such a stellar person, but at any rate, he didn't, he went to, um, he was the curator of the department of anthropology at the, uh, world's Columbian exposition in Chicago. And he worked under, um, <clears throat> Oh my God. Putnam. He's a very, very famous. Frederick Ward, Putnam, um, he worked under him and after that finished that job finished in a year 1893 to 1894 then he stayed on for a few months as the curator of the columbian museum to help transfer the items from the world's columbian exposition to the columbian museum and then he went home uh to new york to his wife and his children and um uh, he actually had a nervous breakdown at that point. It was just exhausted, exhausted and stressed out from from all of the work. I don't Well, his, it,
0: it must uh, have been it must have been terrible. I mean, he gets a job, finally a full-time job at Clark, which was supposed to be this lavishly funded new model university with lots of resources where he was going to be able to start a brilliant career, and then it all falls apart. And so that, that all goes. And then he finds it like basically a temporary one year paid internship. And then I think he was trying to get hired at what became the field museum. And then that didn't work out. So it it sounds like he kind of had his, um, it kind of, it sounds like his fortunes just were continually pinging back and forth between success and failure.
1: Yeah, they were, they were. At, so basically from, the Clark University and then the World's Columbian Exposition, he didn't have a job. He had part-time jobs, but he didn't have a job. And uh, uh, Frederick Ward Putnam was always trying to get him a job, and Marie was just fed up with it. She just kept thinking, <laughs> he's stringing Boaz along, he's not going to offer him a job. And finally, a job came through, and it was Jacoby and Putnam who worked together to get Boaz hired at Columbia University. So finally, he was hired at Columbia University. And in 1899, he had his first full-time position as professor of anthropology. Uh,
0: you know, Charles King, in his book about the Boazians, presents Boaz as uh, a, a radical whose salary is cut by the university. They would fire him if he could. But uh, they can't kick him out of his office, so they don't pay him, and all he can do is come to his office. He's he's portrayed as a much more radical thinker, I feel, in in sections of that book, than he is even among some of the other people do you, uh, who have written on him. Do you get that feeling that he was really in that period that he was meeting very curtly with Lowy, that his life was really it was torn between that professional success that he needed to find and his desire to participate in social justice movements? Or am I, am I Uh, not an expert on that? I
1: think that did play out in his life and even more so in world war one. In 1919, after the war was over when he wrote the letter to the nation on scientists as spies and was censured by the uh, everybody imaginable, uh, but the American Anthropological Association among others, um yes that and and it and butler was butler the president of uh columbia university was very conservative boas was certainly not conservative he definitely was progressive and he pushed he he would not uh acquiesce to injustice so uh, that actually what charles king describes as Boaz hanging on by a thread and, and enduring salary cuts, uh, that, that actually happened. In that was in the late 20s and the early in the, in the 30s when they were trying to get him to retire and get off the campus. Mm.
0: You know, you talk about him being a very intense character. And um, and you have also mentioned just the massive amount of correspondence that he had he seems to be both a habitual overworker and someone who's interested in organizing, constantly organizing. But then he also has this family life uh, where he's very devoted to his children, it appears, and uh, to his wife. How is it that he he managed to pull that off? Am I right in thinking
1: that he did pull that off? He did. And I don't know how, except there was no television <laughs> I mean, there was no television, and he worked constantly. Um, I can tell my diagnosis is that he he must have had, uh, what do you call it, carpal tunnel syndrome uh, from writing because he was constantly writing. He wasn't a typist, but he was always writing longhand, and his writing is like spider writing. It's terrible to read, Uh, but yes, he was a devoted husband and father, and he really valued that family life. Um, He simply made time for it. And he, yes, he did organize. I think he was brilliant in terms of his organizational acumen and his ability to keep so many balls in the air. I just think he was amazing.
0: You know, you quote a letter, I think, that he wrote to one of his uh, siblings at the very beginning of the book where his dream was to become a great scientist and to do something for science. He didn't have a dream of writing a, a specialized treaty that no one would understand. And he didn't seem to dream about making a famous scientific breakthrough. It seemed like his, his goal was something like what we might today call academic service, that, that his dream was to, to be on committees and organize things, which is not something many academics want to do today. We think of that as the extra stuff we have to do.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Well, of course, the the discipline was not defined the way it is now, and so when I think you're referring to the letter that he wrote to Tony in, when he was uh, sixteen, uh, when he said if he doesn't if he doesn't become famous, he doesn't know what he will do. So he has to be famous. He has to do something that is so spectacular that it will be make him famous. And otherwise, he doesn't know what he will do with his life. And he said that ambition scares him. When he realizes the extent of his ambition, it scares him. Uh, so, yes, that, that was the case. Somehow he managed it. I don't know how he managed it. Well, I do know he had a, a wonderful person in Marie who... Who helped him and really, really, really did. Um, not in any way am I dismissing her. She kept the family together.
0: Support—that's what we call it today when we talk about academic careers. He had good support, and she herself was also educated, I believe, and um, and uh, was more than just a stay-at-home mom, as we might say today. She she yes. was part of this.
1: Yes. Yes, she was. Um, she was, I wouldn't say that she was educated in the sense that we now think of a higher education in Germany. She was Austrian, and she went to finishing school in Austria. And she did play the piano, and she was apparently a marvelous cook. Her her daughter in her oral history, Franziska, uh, talks about the cakes that her mother would make according to your age. When you were finally old enough, you'd get a Lenzer tort. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, she, she was very accomplished in what she did. Oh, that's interesting. And
0: the other person who we've mentioned briefly, if you could just uh, tell me a little bit about him before we wrap up the interview, was his uncle, I believe, Abraham Jacobi.
1: Yes, Abraham Jacobo, Jacobi. Yes, Abraham Jacobi is very, very interesting. He was the son of very poor people in a rural village outside of Minden. And because he was, his father was friends with um, Boaz's grandfather, and they were living in the grandfather's house, he came to live with them. And he tutored Franz Boas and Boas's brothers and his sisters, and he fell in love with uh, Boas's aunt, who was Fanny, Aunt Fanny. Uh, he ended up marrying Aunt Fanny, and she died in childbirth. Um, so that was the connection. It was through it was through a connection of marriage, and he but he remained uncle. Jacoby, throughout his life, and he always stepped in to help Boas. Uh, really, I don't think Boas would quite have made it in this country without Uncle Jacoby paving the way. He was very—he was a doctor, uh, a pediatrician, and he was very well regarded in this country in New York.
0: So he was able to act as a patron because he—I uh, guess would was relatively wealthy if he was a doctor, but also uh, because he was so centrally placed. And I think uh, you can correct me, my knowledge deriving only from Wikipedia, that he is sort of one of the fathers of pediatrics. I mean, he was an, a very important yes. person in the history of medicine.
1: Yes, he is, he was. And he was also one of the, I mentioned the 48ers the, from the revolutions of 1848, uh, he was arrested and imprisoned for uh, crime uh, crimes against the huma- against the majesties, the royalty, um, and he was imprisoned in, in various places, in three places. And the jailer told him when he was released he should leave the country because he was going to be arrested again. So he left and he went immediately to France and then to London. And he visited with. Uh, Marx and with Ingalls. He stayed with Ingalls in Manchester. Wow. And then, he, because he couldn't practice medicine in England, he went to uh, New York. So he's a very interesting person and really paved the way for Boaz.
0: I guess, in some sense, because his own family had passed away, Boaz became like a, a son to him in a sense.
1: Yes. Yes, yeah. I think so. Well, And I there suppose- is that thread of family that's so important throughout to Boas's relatives as well as to Boas.
0: And they were sort of a transnational family or sort of a diasporic family as well. Yeah. Yes, they were. Yes. That's fascinating. And uh, as fascinating as it is, we're still only up to 1899, which is around the time when your book ends. Uh, and luckily... I know there's going to be a second volume out as well that's going to take the story through its conclusion. So you just want to tell listeners about the forthcoming book that's going to be out.
1: Yes, that that book, which I really, 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 really wanted to finish, um, is titled Franz Boas, The Shaping of Anthropology, and working for social justice, and that will be out in October of 2022. And I really wanted to finish it because people have tried so hard to write biographies of Boaz, and they just don't. They just, it just doesn't happen. They get exhausted, or they don't get it published, or they die before it's done. Uh, many reasons. So I really wanted to get it finished, and. Um, I'm very happy that it's that it's done and that it's coming out with University of Nebraska Press because they have been so good to me.
0: Well, October is just around the corner. So hopefully that will be yes. available soon for everyone. And now that you've finished this 20-year project, no pressure, do you have any
1: sense of what the next thing is you're going to do? You said you had another project in mind. Oh, I've already started on it. Yes, because I was feeling so... Um, it was postpartum depression, you know? But it was just... <laughs> it was that feeling of, being bereft. Oh my God, I finished this now. What do I do? And so I decided ah, I'll just write another biography. I'm, I'm doing a biography of my mentor in folklore, Alan Dundee's. Um, oh. and so that, that's a wonderful challenge. And I'm embarked on that. I have the first chapter written the introduction, prologue introduction, first chapter, and I'm headed, headed on my way.
0: That's amazing. So that will take you into the 20th century, because he was a
1: folklorist and anthropologist at Berkeley? Yes, he was at UC Berkeley. And he was born in 1935 and died in 2005. might, might have been 1934. I think it was 1935. Died in 2005. Yeah. And wow. I was his archivist and his uh, departmental secretary. So I I know him well. And Uh, I admire him deeply and I'm so committed to writing this biography. So there I am off and on my way.
0: Well, well, we definitely look forward to seeing the second volume of the Boaz biography. And it sounds like we have a second thing to look forward to as well. So that's wonderful. Uh, Rosemary, I don't want to take up any more of your time, so I will let you go. Uh, Thanks again for talking to me today. Today we've been talking with uh, Rosemary levy Zumwalt, the author of Franz Boas, The Emergence of an Anthropologist. Thanks again, Rosemary, for being on the show today.
1: Thank you so much, Alex. I appreciate it.
0: This has been an episode of the New Books Network. Please go ahead and subscribe to find more New Books content. And until next time, take care.